Welcome to the Hills. Preacher Rick here, greeting all of you in person at West Worth Keller, North Richard Hills. All of you that are uh, excited about being a part of our newest campus launch in Dallas next spring. All of you watching online. I want to begin our time together just acknowledging that we've all been uh, watching and grieving and praying about the situation in Israel. Now, I don't have all the answers when it comes to geopolitical issues. In fact, I don't trust people who say they do have all the answers to problems so complicated. What I do know is that every single person is made in the image of God. And that God values every single person. And God grieves over the suffering of innocent people no matter what side of a border they live on. I also know that the scriptures are full of prayers asking God to stop the plans and schemes of people who want to do evil. And I know ultimately, the only hope for harmony in this world is the return of the Prince of Peace. And so I allow these things that I know to guide my thoughts in prayer. And I'd like you to join me right now at every campus. Would you bow your heads and let's pray. So God, it's hard to see the world the way you see it, to not see it through the lens of headlines and pundits, but give us greater capacity, God, to look at what's going on in Israel and Gaza and let our heart break for the things that are breaking your heart, the suffering of so many innocent people. We pray for the violence to end. We pray, God, we join with many in Scripture, and we pray, would you please thwart the plans and schemes of those who want to do evil and protect the innocent? We know that ultimately this world will never know harmony till the Prince of Peace returns, so we pray for that to happen soon. But until then, I lift up a special prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ in that part of the world. There are many Messianic Jews that are gathering today to worship Yeshua, and we pray for their protection. There are many Palestinian Christians who pay a great price to call Jesus Lord. We pray for their protection, too. We pray, in fact, that somehow this horrible conflict might open doors for conversations with our brothers and sisters, with their neighbors, about the Prince of Peace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's keep praying about that together. I was thrilled to get the report about Baptism Sunday. Now, I had to get the report because Jamie and I, along with Chris and Stacy Hatchett, twice a year we do a retreat for ministry couples. And so we were there. And uh, I was at getting teched regularly because I was so uh, excited and had been praying so much. On the way back, Jamie and I actually watched the service online and watched people getting baptized. And it was so exciting. In fact, I have some good news. Part of our vision in asking for nations and generations is to see 1,825 people surrender to Christ and be baptized in five years. Now, we're in the second year of that vision. That's one person a day. 
So I'm thrilled to share with you that through the first 649 days of our vision, 675 people have decided to surrender to Christ and be baptized. And I'm talking to someone right now, and that's your next step. You may not even know it, but it is. You might want to do that today. And we'll say more about that in a moment. I want to thank David Meyer for the great lesson he brought. And I hope this comes across well. There was a part of me that was glad I was not here. Because I want what God is doing in this church to be separated from any single personality. This church is not built on me or David. Maybe the preaching is why you came to this church for the first time, or maybe it was the worship ministry, or maybe it was next-gen ministry. That might be why you came, but I hope it's not why you stay. I hope you've stayed because you believe in our mission to make and grow followers of Jesus, and in our vision to ask for nations and generations, because this church is built on Jesus. Now... I bring that up because that gets confusing sometimes. For example, when my oldest son, Michael, was three years old, he was in our preschool program, and there was a knock on my office door, and the teacher and Michael walked in with the teacher explaining that Michael had not been minding that day. And when he was told to mind his teacher, he replied, I don't have to mind you because my daddy is the boss of this church. Well, we had to have a conversation and clear up that misunderstanding. Now, let's fast forward a few years. My youngest, Matthew, is in the car with his mama. And out of the blue, he says, Mama, Daddy is the boss of the church, right? And Jamie said, well, no, Matthew, Jesus is the boss of the church. He rolled his eyes and said, yeah, yeah, but really, Daddy is the boss of the church. She said, well, no, actually, the elders are the boss of the church, And he's getting visibly frustrated. Okay, yeah, but seriously, daddy is the boss of the church. And Jamie was brilliant. She said, well, you know, Matthew, Jesus said, if you want to be the most important, you need to be the person that is willing to serve everybody. Matthew scowled, turned to the window, and under his breath said, then why would anybody want to be the boss of the church? Where did my boys get that idea? Because they never heard that language at home. But they heard it everywhere else. Because that is a dominant narrative. Who's in charge? Who's the most important? Who's the boss? It is a common and often loaded conversation. And it has great potential to disrupt all kinds of organizations or political parties or businesses or families and even faith communities. But it is a conversation that should go when the kingdom comes. Because Jesus is giving us a different narrative to see the world through. But the only narrative his disciples knew was, who's the boss? So when they sign up to follow Jesus, they're naturally thinking, well, after Jesus, who's the most important? In fact, James and John have their mother come and ask Jesus, can my boys be the boss when you set up your kingdom? Now, it says in Matthew 20, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. You know why they were mad? Because they wanted to be the boss. 
And James and John played the ultimate trump card and asked mama to do the work. So notice how Jesus responds. He called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're in this series called It's a Must. And here's the basic premise. If Jesus is our rabbi, our Lord, then if he says something is a must, we can't treat it like a maybe. Jesus is doing more than just giving us a set of beliefs to agree with. Jesus is asking us to embrace a radical way of living that he is modeling. And so if Jesus is your rabbi, then service is a must. In a world obsessed with get your own way. Jesus is saying, no, give your life away. That is the path to significance. Jesus is not against you wanting to be great. He's against you trying to be great with the narrative of the world. So let me sum up in one sentence what he's saying. That in the kingdom of God, greatness is service, not status. Now that is so countercultural. That goes against every other way culture tells us to measure greatness. That Jesus comes along and says, do you want to be great? Then go down the path of downward mobility. But here's the thing. Our rabbi practiced what he preached. You've heard me say before, anyone who says all world religions are basically the same has not studied the claims of the world's great religions. The Christian faith has unique claims that are absolutely unique. And here are two of them. One is that God came our way. No other religion says God would put on flesh and become like us. But it gets even more radical. It's not just that God came our way. It is the way that he came. That when God came down, he really came down. Look at how Paul says it. Christ himself was like God in everything. But he did not think that being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit. But he gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born as a man and became like a servant. No other faith says such audacious things about God. That he came our way and the way he came was to make himself a servant. To Jesus' own words, I did not come to, serve, to be served. I came to serve. And so understand we have a rabbi that isn't just telling us to go down a path. We have a rabbi that is leading us down that path. 
He chose to put on flesh. Now, that's radical, but it gets even more radical. The one that chose to put on flesh then chose to put on a towel and wash feet. And in doing so, he gave us a completely new definition of greatness. Now, our rabbi said, no disciple is above his teacher. Now, if the student is not above the teacher, and if the teacher has self-identified as a servant, what does that make us? And so in this community that Jesus is building, service is not a maybe. It is a must. Don't misunderstand me to say that serving has salvific value. In other words, we don't serve so that we can get into the kingdom. We serve because we are in the kingdom. And Jesus said, I didn't come to to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. There's one way, reason we can know we are saved because Jesus has given his life for us. He has taken our penalty and in exchange we have received his righteousness. So no one is saved by service, but everyone is saved for service. You don't serve to get into the kingdom but you serve because the kingdom has gotten into you. When I was a young preacher, I was very influenced by an author, scholar, and pastor named John Stott from England. I read everything he wrote. And uh, he died about 10 years ago, and I was reading some tributes to him. And one was by a Latin American theologian named Rene Padilla. And they met in Argentina, and Stott had come, and they were going to speak at a conference, and Stott was the keynote speaker. Uh, they got in late at night. It was rainy. They walked out a muddy street, got into their hotel room that they shared. The next morning, Rene woke up to a na- sound. He looked over, and John Stott is brushing the mud off of Rene's shoes. John, what are you doing? And Stott said, well, Jesus said to wash your feet, but I, you don't need me to wash your feet. So I'm just going to brush the mud off your shoes. That's how you think when the kingdom has gotten into you. Let's go a little deeper. Here's what I'm saying. Here are three big ideas. First, that we must see service as identity more than activity. Jesus isn't calling us to, to do something as much as he is calling us to be something. Now, this is going to require a shift in our fundamental understanding of ourselves. Because the narrative of the culture is the only path to greatness and to happiness is you've got to make it about you. You've got to do you. And so that's how the flesh and the culture is going to cause our life to drift if we're not intentional and we say every day as we take up that cross, I am a servant who follows Jesus Christ. And in my narrative, 
Greatness is service, not status. So every day, we've got to hear our rabbi whisper, you can be great today. Because you're going to have at least one chance today to give your life away for the sake of somebody else. I like how our friend Bob Goff puts it. Stop calling it ministry and start calling it Tuesday. In other words, stop thinking of service as something you slot on your calendar to do. But it's something you are every day as you live. See, servant is not a special class of believer. Servant is the identity of every single person who is enrolled in the class of following Jesus. And by the way, it's significant. The people that seem to get this the most are the people that tend to think about it the least. They just do what they do because they are who they are. Jesus told a story about some servants that he wanted to reward. Thank you. Thank you for coming to see me when I was in prison and feeding me when I was hungry and giving me clothes when I was naked. And they're like, we don't remember doing that. You see, it wasn't conscious to them, how can I impress God today? It was just, we're in the kingdom. We love our king. This is how we live. This is who we are. That's our new identity in Christ. And I want to say to parents especially, it's an identity you've got to reinforce every day in a culture that is telling the next generation a different story. So look for teachable moments. You have one. We've got Harvest Sunday coming up. And so if you haven't, get one of these cans from a welcome center uh, for your children. And every year we ask our kids to help with our contribution. But don't just collect coins, moms and dads. When you put those coins in this can, tell them why. We love Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we want to help people. Give them a better way to be great. I love how Paul puts it. We do not preach about ourselves, but we preach about Jesus Christ as Lord and that we're your servants for Jesus. But think about it. If service is our core identity, doesn't that imply that we must have a core community? So the second big idea is that If we're servants, then we must prioritize the one another life. That if serving is a must, then we must have a people we can serve with and for. If you're a sports fan, you recognize this picture. Yao Ming, seven foot six from China. Uh, All-NBA, All-Pro for the Houston Rockets, played many years, a great player. He was asked after his career in a magazine interview about some of the adjustments he had to make in American culture. He was asked especially, why is it that while China has some of the greatest athletes in the world, 
they don't tend to excel in team sports. They tend to excel in individual sports, swimming, diving, track and field events, gymnastics, but not so much in team sports. And Yao Ming gave a very interesting reply. He said, it was a generation like me that grew up in the one-child policy. When you grow up with just one child in the family, you never learn to share. You never learn to let someone else have their way. He said, there are certain character qualities you never develop if you never have to do something for someone else. Now, I'm wondering if we're raising a generation in some ways like that. Because what we've done is we have replaced actual community for digital community. And so we have thousands of friends with no actual demands of friendship. I have hundreds and hundreds of friends on social media. I expect nothing from them. They expect nothing from me except to occasionally supply a curated slice of my life. Jesus is building a different definition of community. He never said to anybody, you want some private discipleship lessons? Discipleship is a team sport. He calls us to follow him in community. That's why the words one another are all over the pages of the New Testament. And there's a particular metaphor that is used in the New Testament for who this community is, who the church is, and and it's the word body. Now, we are servants wherever we go, but we particularly go regularly and meet with this group of people that we call the body of Christ. And here's what the New Testament says about that, that every single member of the body is needed. Because every single member of the body is gifted. I thought about that just this week. I found out I had something in my left hip called bursitis. I don't know what that is. I don't know what a bursa is. I have never seen a bursa and don't really ever care to. But just because I can't see it doesn't mean that what it does is not important. In fact, the whole body communicated to me this week that bursa is very, very important. Now, here's the thing. When you get saved, God adds you to the body of Christ. And it's very clear. He gives you a gift for the sake of the body. So if you are not using your gift, then there is something that God wants done for his body that's not getting done. That's pretty strong, but I stand behind what I just said. If you are a member of a church that is not serving in any way, there's something God wants done, not getting done. Look at 1 Peter 4 with me. 
Each of you has received a gift to use to serve others. Be good servants of God's various gifts of grace. Whatever Jesus expects, Jesus empowers. So just imagine what it would be like one Sunday. If everyone came to the gathering of the body, and instead of thinking, I wonder what I'm going to get out of it today. Every person thought, I wonder what I can put into it today. Where can I be a blessing today? What would that be like? And so I'm boldly asking you to serve. On our website, you can go to thehills.org slash serve others. Or you can look at that QR code. And, and we've got all kinds of ways for you to serve. Because we're living by a different narrative. General William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, they were having a convention. Uh, they wanted him to be the main speaker. He couldn't come because he was sick. They said, could you cable a message? He did. It was one word. Others. That's how we think. Because that's who we are. And by the way, if you go to that website, you'll notice there's a lots of ways you can serve the body in the church. But there's also lots of ways you can serve through the church as a blessing to our city. And that's the last big idea I need to share with you. That we must be different and we must make a difference. I read something I didn't know about the communist revolution in the Soviet Union. 1917, they disposed the czars. They set up communist rule. I thought they made Christianity illegal. They did not. It was not illegal to meet in church. What they made illegal was the church's capacity to serve. The party said, we will take over what the church used to do. We will feed the hungry. We will clothe the naked. We will take care of the sick. Now, they did a terrible job of doing that. But they said, only the state can serve the city. And what happened was that the church became absolutely irrelevant. It lost its capacity to witness. Now, I believe as followers of Jesus, holiness is a must. And part of what that means is there's some things I'm not going to do that the culture says is okay. I'm going to say, not for me. I follow Jesus. But holiness is more than just the absence of badness. Holiness is the presence of visible goodness. That Jesus left us here for a greater purpose than just to avoid sinning. So last year, I got to speak at a conference in Florida. And the other main speakers were the governor of Virginia... And Dan Cathy, who was the head of Chick-fil-A. You say, what were you doing on that program? I have no clue. <laughs> I do think Dan Cathy's more important to America than the governor of Virginia. <laughs> but I'm pretty biased about Chick-fil-A. So Dan Cathy was talking about the servant culture they tried to create at Chick-fil-A franchises. I listened because I knew that this man practices what he preaches. You see, I had heard Rick Warren, a well-known pastor in California, tell a story a couple of years earlier about Dan Cathy. Dan Cathy had gone out to California to check on some uh, new franchises they were building. Uh, he and Rick met up. Dan took him to a place they were constructing, a Chick-fil-A close to Rick's church building. 
Uh, they walked around. They got hungry. Across the street to Taco Bell. So they had a Chick-fil-A and Rick Warren walk across the street and go to Taco Bell. Now their hands are dirty. They've been on a construction site. So they go in the bathroom to wash their hands. Rick washes his hands. Dan washes his hands. And he notices that the sink is very dirty. So Dan Kathy grabs some extra towels and starts to clean the sink of the bathroom at the Taco Bell. And Rick says, Dan, what are you doing? And Dan Kathy says, we teach our people to always leave a place better than you found it, whether it's your place or not. That's straight Jesus. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You put salt on something so it will taste better. You turn on a light so you can see better. What he's saying is Jesus is building a people that make things better wherever they go. It's just better if Christians show up. Our job is not to stay behind our wall and curse all that's wrong in our city. Our mission is to bless our city because this is where God has put us. And I think we are. I've always wanted to pastor a church that the city would miss if it disappeared. I think our city would miss us. Ask our schools where many of you show up to mentor fourth graders or do support groups for teenagers. Ask those that seek asylum if the people that help asylum seekers knows who the Hills Church is. Ask the people in the foster system if they know about our church. Go to the Tarrant County jails and ask those in charge if they would miss the Hills Church. See, Jesus calls us out of the world to be different. Then he sends us back into the world to make a difference. And through service, we give witness to the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. So that very next verse in 1 Peter reads, Anyone who speaks should speak words from God, and anyone who serves should serve with the strength God gives, so that in everything God will be praised through Jesus Christ. And that's another reason service is a must, because God must be praised. God must be glorified. God must be thanked for who he is. And it happens when we make a difference. We give our lives away. And the irony is, in doing so, we find a greater way to live. That's the story of Jacoba and Christina Robinson, newer members of our church, who found greatness in serving. So watch their story, please. So we're servers. And service is really something that we were looking for in our new yeah. church family. We wanted not just for Jacoby and I to be able to serve, but we wanted our children to be able to serve. We wanted my mom who lives with us to be able to serve. We wanted our whole family to be engaged in service. I was very nervous about coming to a large church. So I kind of took the lead. I took, allowed Christina to take the lead. And it, it, was, it was wonderful timing in that I had been diagnosed with cancer. And so I did not want that diagnosis to stop the family from getting involved. And so after I came to the end of treatment, <clears throat> though I was still a little weak, 
we found it uh, feasible for us to participate in Renew Serve, and I think that was first real uh, opportunity to serve was in that moment, and we did it together as a family. That was super exciting for us. Yeah, I think that um, it doesn't have to look like something really big, um, and really, I think God just needs your yes. Um, just by going and saying yes to serve, we've been rewarded more than we could ever give um, through our time and, and through, through our, our efforts. To be able to give it all back to Him, whatever gift, whatever talent, whatever strength, whatever energy, I don't believe that He healed me from cancer just to say thank you, but to do thank you. And I think a great way to do thank you is through service. Amen. Isn't that good? <laughs> I've watched that video several times now, and every time Jacoby says, he didn't heal me just to say thank you, but to do thank you, I get chills up my spine. It makes me want to preach 30 more minutes. <laughs> I won't, but it makes me want to. Because I think that is a wonderful way to think about heaven, a place where everyone is just doing thank you, because we will. You understand that, don't you? We are all destined for greatness, that when we get to glory, there's not going to be anybody asking who's the boss. But we're all going to be asking, who can I bless? And we're not going to stop serving. You know why? Because Jesus isn't. It's not what he does. It's who he is. And he's not going to stop being who he is. In fact, in one of the most stunning verses in all the Bible, Jesus said this about himself and who he will be in glory. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. And I tell you the truth, he himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. That's our rabbi. He just can't not put on aprons. He's never going to stop serving. And so there's going to be a day in glory when you're going to get an invitation to have lunch with Jesus. And here's what's going to happen. He's going to tell you to sit down. He says, this meal, I'm going to renew. Because you were a good and faithful servant. And when he brings you something to eat, he's going to lean over and he's going to whisper in your ear. Well done. He made that promise. And so it's a must. Live today for that day. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are who you are. That serving 
blessing, pouring yourself out for others. This is the God we worship. This is the Lord we follow. This is our rabbi. And so give us this week greater capacity in a culture that bombards us with thousands of messages a day that we have to consume to be happy. Give us greater capacity to say that's not true. That my highest joy is not in how much I can get. But where can I give? And who can I love? Help us be more like Jesus. That would be really great. We pray in his name. Amen.